I hope you all have your notes here this morning. You can see that we've got a lot of territory to cover. <clears throat> I'm talking about a, a topic today that I think it's about a decade since I spoke about this subject. So it's probably not a bad thing to take it up again. Uh, and seeking to explain why we do what we do. Uh, why do so many churches think that the concept of formal church membership is such a, an important thing? And why do we think that? Of course, fewer churches think that now than used to. But So I'm going to try and address that today. I'll say a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Holy Father, I do thank you for your great love for us. I thank you for the assurance that we have through Christ Jesus our Lord of the forgiveness of our sins, of everlasting life, of a future resurrection. And I, I thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to an eternity with you uh, where we'll finally be free from all the effects of sin. Lord, I pray now that you would, through the power of your Spirit, uh, help us to understand your word correctly. And help me, I pray, to teach it with clarity and conviction and love. And I pray these things for your glory and for our good. And as always, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Over the past, well, more than 30 years now in, in pastoral ministry, I begin to notice more and more a trend away from stressing any kind of formal church membership in local churches. Um, I've also increasingly been hearing the objection that there just isn't any support for such a concept in Scripture. The idea of formal church membership, meaning some sort of formal process by which you receive people into the church, ours is a pretty simple process. Uh, it's as informal as formal can be, I suppose. <laughs> um, but this idea of formal church membership, I've often been told, is simply a man-made tradition which needs to be jettisoned if we're ever going to be truly faithful to Scripture and our church practices and relationships. Um, uh, I do beg to differ with this assessment, and I want to share briefly here some of the reasons why. I say briefly. I've given you a lot of Scriptures there. <laughs> I've got eight pages of notes here almost, and... Uh, but this is as brief as I can make it. Let's put it that way. Uh, I do want to share with you uh, some reasons why I think that the scriptures do indeed necessitate the practice of some kind of formal church membership in the local churches. And you can see from your notes, I basically just gone through the New Testament, look at different ways that the Bible speaks about the church and where this notion seems to come out. But before I set forth some of the scriptural evidence in this regard, I want to remind you all of a, of a crucial point that we need to keep in mind when we weigh this evidence. Um, and that has to do with what we accept as the authoritating, uh, authoritative teaching of scripture and why we accept it as such. Um, consider, for example, the following statement from the Baptist Confession of 1689, and our church holds to a an amended version of that confession is our central statement of faith. And here's what it says in uh, chapter 1, paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. More on that necessarily contained in a moment unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Now, the general rules of the word there are principles. That's what they mean by that. That sometimes you don't have a direct statement in Scripture or something that can be derived therefrom by way of good and necessary inferences, we'll see. But, 
Sometimes you look for biblical principles and how do those apply to your situation. And uh, next week I'll, I'll tackle another issue of, uh, that many churches practice, uh, tithing, and talk about the case that can or cannot be made for that. I don't think the case is as strong as some people think it is, myself. But, but we'll look at that. And then I'll hope in the weeks following that to actually go into more detail as about how we determine something to be biblical. Uh, I'll give four or five parameters I'm working on for how to determine whether something, some practice is biblical or not. And um, I'm going to spend some time on that. I'll probably take a couple of weeks doing that, actually. Um, I meant to do that before I did these two messages on these two topics uh, because I thought it would lay the groundwork better, but I'm not still coming up with new material as easily as I, as I want, although I am improving, and I do thank you for your prayers. For those of you who um, are new to us, I, I'm a two-time survivor of, seps, of sepsis in this past year, uh, and one of the things that happens frequently with that is cognitive dysfunction and memory issues that have made it difficult for me to prepare messages frequently. <laughs> uh, and so it's caused me to go back and preach things I preached a decade ago because I trust the process by which I came to that and I can at least follow my notes. So, so that's one of the reasons. And I think in God and his providence has done this to me or allowed this to happen to me, maybe to force me to go back and do some of this. Uh, so it's not such a bad thing. <laughs> I think it's a good thing in his providence. At any rate, uh, this notion of something being necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, I think the Baptist Confession of 1689 took something that was clearer in the Westminster Confession of Faith and made it less clear when they said that, in my mind. Um, because when it refers to what is necessarily contained in the scripture, what's either explicit or necessarily contained, it has in mind the same idea that was expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, upon which, at least at this point, it's substantially based. It asserts, the Westminster Confession, the same principle this way. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, men's salvation, faith, and life, is, is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence, meaning inference, may be deduced from Scripture. I think that's clearer than necessarily contained in. Um, the, I think that's what the Baptist Confession of 1689 is talking about. I wish that it had been more explicit. So we accept as authoritative not only what is expressly stated in Scripture, but what may be derived therefrom by way of good and necessary inference. And in the coming weeks, I'll get into why do we hold that as such an important thing. And I'll actually show you that the Bible itself utilizes this principle. The teaching of our Lord Jesus does this, for example, where he'll cite an Old Testament passage and draw out necessary inferences from it, not explicit statements. But he'll, he'll base his case for something on a necessary inference. So our Lord Jesus teaches us that this is also a way to derive authoritative teaching from the word. And we'll see that, as I said, in the coming weeks. Now, these two Reformed confessions that I've cited both affirm this same idea, and I think they're right. But, but uh, it wasn't a new idea developed by 17th century churches following the Reformation. It's been accepted throughout the whole history of the church. As I said, Jesus himself and the apostles utilized this principle of not just what is expressly stated, but what can be drawn from Scripture by way of good and necessary inference in their own teachings. But one good example of this in, in, in Christian doctrine would be that our statement of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, although we do not have an explicit statement of Scripture asserting that we must think of God as one essence or one being consisting of three persons who somehow share that same being, um, we demand that this is an essential statement of the doctrine of the Trinity by way of good and necessary inference. The totality of scripture teaching regarding the doctrine of God simply demands that we make such a doctrinal assertion. And all Orthodox Christians have therefore accepted it for that reason. So that's a, that's a key doctrine 
developed on this concept of good and necessary inference. And I think this is the same kind of situation that we're in with regard to the concept of formal church membership in the local church. I see no explicit assertion of the concept in Scripture, but I do see it as both a good and a necessary inference. Now, that's important, good and necessary. Some of you may come away and say, Keith, I think it's a good inference, but maybe not necessary. <laughs> see, it has to be... You can, you can sometimes read a passage of Scripture and come up with a couple of good inferences, right? Uh, which means that neither of them are necessary, right? Uh, it has to be a good and necessary inference, and I, just, I think that this is necessary. And I hope to show you that, that it's a good and necessary inference. And I think there are a number of lines of biblical evidence that combine to indicate that this is the case. And this is where we get into these different texts that speak of the church in different ways. And the first set of texts I want to look at are texts which speak of church relationships. And I'll be moving really quickly, which is why I wanted you to have uh, this outline with all the scripture references, because I'm going to be reading them more quickly than you can probably turn to them, or we'll be here till next week, probably. So, and here, when I talk about church relationships, I'm going to focus on two metaphors used of a local church, which indicate inclusion in a recognizable and definable group. Two different metaphors used of the church, which seem to indicate inclusion in a recognizable and definable group, that the church is not some nebulous body that you don't know who's in and out. But you have a clear idea of who's in and out, right? Um, the first is that the church is a body. And the first passage we'll look at here is found in Romans. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, which says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now here we can already see where we get the language of church membership in the first place. The language of church membership comes right out of the Bible, which speaks as this, of members of Christ's body, which is the church. That's church membership. Um, and, and this is true of church membership both universally and locally. Um, it also describes both the close relationship we have with Christ and with one another as believers in Christ. As Paul says, being members of the body members were members of one another in some sense. Another text would be found in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, which speaks of this idea of a body with members. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by, or I think better, in or with, so for with or in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now here Paul speaks of the church as a body with many members, and these members are those, and only those, who have been baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit into one body. Because when Paul talks about being baptized with the Spirit, he's referring back to the prophecies about Jesus and Jesus' restatement of that prophecy, right, made by John the Baptist. I baptize you with water, but one who's coming after me will baptize you with the Spirit. And then Jesus restated that to his apostles right before Pentecost, right, in the beginning of Acts, that he would baptize with them with the Spirit. Paul's using the same language here. And so he's referring to Christ baptizing believers with the Spirit. And those are the only ones who are members of the body. This happens at conversion for the next generation of believers that Paul's writing to in, in 1 Corinthians, who weren't alive or, or who weren't part of the believing body of Christ before Pentecost, right? After Pentecost, all the new believers are baptized with the Spirit at conversion. That's what Paul's teaching here. And you can't be a member of the body unless it's happened. That's how you're a member of the body, as Paul sees it. So, the members of the body are only those who are true believers in Christ and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And here then we get 
important information about who it is that we should guard, regard as the member of the body. Unbelievers cannot be regarded as member of the body. <laughs> Period. Uh, there are some churches that don't believe that, actually. They would say, for example, uh, Christians and their children are actually members of the church, whether their children believe or not. It's actually churches that teach that. And they're wrong. We can see that. They're, they're wrong to teach that. In fact, it's, it's also a dangerous teaching because if you tell a child he's already a member of the church and he goes reading the Bible and sees that that means you're a Christian, then that he might think he's a Christian or she might think she's a Christian and they don't even believe. They haven't even trusted in Christ for themselves. So it's very important, this parameter here. This, uh, I think John Piper seeks to draw up the implication of this passage for the issue of church membership when he correctly observes that, quote, Church membership is implied in the metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, 12-31. The original meaning of the word member is a member of the body, like a hand or a foot, an eye, an ear. That's the imagery behind the word member in the text. Verse 12 says, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So the question this imagery raises, he says, for the local church that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 12 is... Who intends to be treated as a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear of the body? There's a unity and organic relationship implied in the imagery of the body. There is something unnatural about a Christian attaching himself to a body of believers and not being a member of the body. Now, I would be quick to agree that this text does not explicitly assert the concept of formal church membership, Right? That, that there's some process we go through by which we formally recognize people as members of the church, when I say that. But clearly, we have to have some idea of knowing who's believers and who we consider members of the body or not. And we have, have some way of the church knowing that, right? Who we consider to be actual members of the body of Christ or not. And that hence, formal church membership I think it implies that, that people are recognized formally somehow as members of the body. Um, so th that's an important statement there. Uh, this implication becomes even stronger when we go on to consider the totality of the New Testament evidence. But first we want to look at the second primary metaphor used to describe church relationships, and that is the church is a family. The church is a family. And the first passage we'll look at here is found in Galatians. And I think this is a pretty important verse for our, for our study, Galatians 6.10, where Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who have the household of faith. The oikeos, the household of faith. Now, the Greek word translated household, that word oikeos, literally means belonging to a standing relation to a household. And in, in the New Testament, the plural is used, as it is here, to, to speak of members of the household or members of a family, someone's relatives. And so it's used figuratively of members of God's spiritual family, God's household, or God's family. And that's how it's used in Galatians 6.10. The word's used the same way uh, of the church in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 2.19, where he says this, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household or the family of God. Now, the point we're interested in here is that Paul expects believers to know who are and who are not members of their church family. For how else could they obey the command to do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith? If you don't have some way of formally understanding who's in that household or that family of God, how do you know to do good to all, but especially to them. Got to have some way of knowing who they are. So just as we have a clear understanding of who is and isn't a part of our biological family, Paul assumes also that we will have at least some degree of clarity about who is and who isn't a part of our church family. But doesn't this imply some kind of formal church membership by which certain people are recognized by the church as a definite part of the family and others are not? 
If Paul is one of the elders in a church, say, in Galatia, says, do good to all, but especially to the members of the body, he's assuming they all have an understanding of who those members are. A collective understanding. Somewhere, somebody's got an idea of who's in and who's out that's been made clear to everyone. Or else, how can you give a command like that? I think there's some kind of inference to be drawn here. I think there's a good inference, in my mind, necessary inference of some kind of formal idea of membership. We'll see that this is indicated maybe even more clearly in our next set of passages as well. Texts would speak of church gatherings. Texts would speak of church gatherings. Now, there are a couple of passages which speak of church gatherings in such a way as to indicate a clearly distinguishable group of believers. For example, in Acts 15.22, we're told that it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barzabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Remember, there was a council in Jerusalem where they dealt with some important doctrinal issues, and they were sending representatives to the church to talk about what had happened there. But we're told that at that council it pleased the apostles and the whole church to do this. Now how would they know if the whole church had been gathered in the first place, let alone whether or not the whole church agreed with their plan, if they didn't know who they were? If they didn't have some clear understanding of who made up this body called the church, who was in and who was out, they didn't have a bunch of unbelievers gathering with them to make this decision. It was made by the whole church. They must have had some way of ascertaining who they were and actually of keeping track of them. In 1 Corinthians 14.23, we're told, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, because unbelievers aren't part of the church, right? uh, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Uh, again, how... Would anyone know if the whole church was gathered if there was no formal understanding of who was or who wasn't a part of the church? So they're having their services, and, in, and at least in Corinth, they might speak in tongues, and Paul said you can only do that with an interpreter, or people just think you're crazy. If some unbeliever comes in to the meeting of the whole church, they see, they knew who the unbelievers were and who the believers were. Paul's assuming they would all know that which means he's assuming they would all know who the Christians were. Because sometimes unbelievers came to church meetings, as they do today. And I, as a pastor, I try to know who those unbelievers are, right? Now, sometimes believers come and visit with us, and sometimes unbelievers do. It's important that we try to know who they are. We're going to proper, properly minister to them. Again, though, they must have had some way of ascertaining who they were and, and keeping track of them. And to my mind, such passages indicate that the leaders of the churches had to have had some mutually agreed upon way of knowing who was to be regarded as a part of their respective churches and who was not to be so regarded. They had to have had some way of knowing when they gathered the whole church together and when they hadn't. They had to have had some way of discerning when the whole church agreed about something and when they didn't. And this implies, to me, some kind of formal process. This wasn't guesswork. The third set of texts are texts which speak of church growth. Texts which speak of church growth. And there are at least a couple of passages which speak of church growth in such a way as to indicate that a clearly distinguishable, uh, distinguishable number of people were included in the church. For example, in Acts 2.41... Uh, we're told that then, then those who gladly received his word, the word of Peter who was preaching, they were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Somebody counted. And in Luke's recollection of it, he rounded off the number. Uh, when Luke went to write the book of Acts and he talked to people, maybe the people he talked to said, I don't remember the specific number. It was about 3,000. <laughs> so that's what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, 
And it says about 3,000 souls here. So he, he's telling you, he's giving you a rounded number here. Later on in the same text, we're told that the Lord added, in verse 247, to the church daily those who were being saved. Both of these texts speak of people being added to the church when they were saved. Once again, in these passages, indicating that only believers were so added. Acts 2.41 also indicates that only those who received the gospel and were baptized were added to the church. So here we have more help in determining who it is that we should regard as members of the church. Um, they should be believers who have been baptized as such. It seems to me that uh, far too many churches these days ignore the implication of this text when considering church membership. Now, formal church membership. Now, we've often had the case where people have come to our church and haven't been baptized, or sometimes some of our children have come to faith and haven't yet been baptized. We still recognize them as Christians, and we still treat them as members of the body of Christ. But are they recognized as formal members of this church? Can they then vote in church meetings? No. Can they serve as deacons or elders? No. Because we can't formally recognize them as, as an actual member of the body of Christ until they've been baptized, apparently. That's, that's the, at least was true of the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And again, this notion that there were about 3,000 souls added to the church means that someone was counting their number and keeping track. Sounds like a list might have been made. Um, this also indicates, again, that they had some means of knowing who was in, who was out. And we have seen in this passage that this was by means of a public and credible profession of faith followed by baptism. It's one of the ways they knew. And so when someone becomes a member, formally a member at Emmanuel, what do we do? Our, here's how formal our process is, right? If you want to be a member of Emmanuel, you meet with the elders and you, you tell them your story of how you came to faith in Christ and how he's worked in your life. So we're looking for a credible profession of faith. And, and, and that you've been baptized as a believer. And if you haven't, then we'll baptize you, right? And then you, and then, and then you can be a member of our church. When the elders recognize that you give a credible profession of faith, and you're a baptized believer, you can be a member of our church. We also talk about doctrine with you. We go over... Do you have any questions about our doctrine? And uh, Can you submit to the doctrine of this church? That's another part of it for us. Uh, if, if you come here and you don't believe what we believe, and you're going to be a thorn in our side, you might want to be a member of a different local church, right? Because it's not going to be good for you or for us if you come uh, with such division in your heart. So we can't have that. So these are the kinds of things that the elders try to be careful about. But we also want to make sure that someone who professes faith in Christ isn't a heretic, because heretics can't be members of the body either, right? So that's what we're looking for there. Not that everybody has to agree. We have a long statement of faith. You don't have to agree with everything in there. You have to hold to essential doctrines of the faith, and you have to agree that you won't be a problem on things you don't agree with, for example. So I'm getting a little off track here talking about some of what we do, but... Um, for example, we've had people that come here and say, well, you know, you're a Calvinistic church, and I don't hold to all five points of Calvinism. Maybe I don't like the limited atonement. I think that's a bad reading of Scripture. I don't mind if you guys hold it. Uh, so long as you're willing to agree to disagree with me, I'm willing to agree to disagree with you, and I don't want to cause a problem over it. I just want you to know I don't believe that. We say, fine. You can be a member of our church. You don't have to agree with us on everything. You're a believer. You can be a believer and not agree with that doctrine. Welcome. <laughs> right? So there are things that we can agree to disagree on, and that's fine. Now, if you want to be an elder or deacon, things might be different, especially if you want to be an elder. We're going to, we're going to have a much more strict set of rules and requirements for you because you're supposed to teach the faith. You've got to know it a lot better, and you've got to agree with us a lot more about what that means. So that gives you some idea about how, in practice, we do things here. It's not hard. It's just simple steps to take to make sure we're following the Bible, right? There's another text here in Acts 5, now that I'm getting back on track here, uh, 11 through 14, 
that I think is also very helpful. Uh, this is after the indication of uh, the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they both dropped dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit and they lied to the apostle uh, Peter. And we're told in Acts 5.11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Sometimes that's a really good thing for a church, for great fear to come upon it when discipline has been done. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. They apparently were meeting there frequently in the early days of the church in Jerusalem. That's in the temple precincts. Yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added, there's that word added again, to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now Luke tells us that believers were added to the Lord in verse 14, which here means that they were added to the church, because he's talking about the church. But we're also told that some of them were not added, namely the ones who dared not join them. So apparently, when you became a believer, you were joining the church. And there are some people that indicated their unbelief by refusing to join the church. And the Greek word translated join here is informative. It's a, it's a strong word. It means to join closely or can even mean to like glue together, to unite in a strong bond. It can also be used figuratively to describe the closest of relationships between people, such as when Paul used it in his first epistle, excuse me, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17, this word kalao for joined is used there. And Paul says, do you not know that he was joined, that's the same word, to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he was joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So the word is a strong one that can even describe the sexual union, but also obviously the spiritual union of a believer with Christ. But it gives you an idea of how intimate a bond we're talking about here, how close a bond we're talking about. Um, Luke, however, used it in Acts to describe the union of the individual believer with Christ's body, the church, when he spoke of those who refused to join, to be united with the church, they were refusing to join with Christ. But the very fact that some did not believe in Christ and refused to join the church means that those who did believe had joined the church when they were added to their number in Jerusalem. So once again, we see this close relationship be between being joined to Christ and being joined to the church. In this case, the local church in Jerusalem. Indeed, the Greek word used by Luke implies a level of commitment, I think, deliberately entered into by the people who joined the church. The people who refused to join were making the decision not to do that, which means that the people who joined were making the decision to do that. However afraid I am when I see the awesome power of God working among these people, I want to be part, right, in the context They clearly made a conscious decision, it seems to me, as, as a step many others refused to take. This implies some formal decision process to me. Uh, the fourth set of texts, or texts which speak of church leadership. Church leadership. There are several passages which speak of the nature of church leadership, which also clearly indicate that they had to have had some kind of formal understanding of who was or wasn't under their charge. Look at Acts 20, verses 28-29. You remember that Paul had gathered together the elders in Ephesus for a meeting. And he was giving them some final words concerned that he might not see them again. Right? And so he was, there's really good instruction about what elders are supposed to be and do in this passage. And that's what he's reiterating to them. And as a part of that, he says in Acts 20, 28, and 29, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Here's another metaphor for the church. Sheep, a flock, and, church, and the leaders as shepherds. 
He says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now here Paul refers to the local church in Ephesus. We know that from the preceding context, verse 17. As a flock that the elders are to shepherd. And he specifies that they are to watch over all the flock. But this would entail knowing who were included in the flock and who weren't included, wouldn't it? Certainly wouldn't seem possible to watch over every member of the flock if one didn't know who was and who wasn't to be regarded as such. The elders in Ephesus knew who every member of the church was that they were responsible for before the Lord. They had a clear understanding of it. They had to have, or they couldn't have been given this command, let alone follow it. Something similar is in 1 Peter 5, 1-5, where Peter offers some instruction to elders. 1 Peter 5, 1 says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Here's what he has to say. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Those entrusted to you. But being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. There's a reward. Now, here, when he speaks of those who are entrusted to them, Peter uses this Greek word kleros. Um, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, was that for a title, says that kleros primarily means uh, a specifically marked object, such as a pebble, a piece of pottery, or a stick used to decide something. A lot. A lot that's cast. But it can also mean that which is assigned by lot or simply given as a portion. And, that, and then, then it can mean portion or share. So the word can mean a lot or it can mean what has been assigned by lot. And, and in that way, it just took on a different meaning. It means a portion or a share that's designated to someone. And it doesn't mean you had to cast lots. To, it doesn't mean that the elders cast lots to see who each one would be responsible for. It just is a word that was derived from that that just meant a portion of something or a share of something that was specific. Right? And that's how Paul's using it here. Um, it, it goes on to state, that particular lexicon, of Peter's use of the plural here, form of kleros, kleroi, that it seems to denote the flock as a whole, i.e. the various parts of the people of God which have been assigned as portions to individual elders or shepherds. So they're saying what Paul, what Peter rather is implying here is when he speaks of this, you elders each have a portion of the flock that you're looking after. Which is clearly asserting then that the elders are responsible for the individual members of the particular flock over which they serve. These are their portion. So the elders of Emmanuel, those of you who are part of this body here, you are the portion, the share that we have been given to watch over. You're the part of the flock. It's our duty to hopefully care for and watch over. We try to do that. Some of us are struggling to do that with health issues right now, but we're trying our best anyway to pray for you and care for you. But you're our portion once again, it, it's assumed that they'll have some idea who they are, right? I think John Piper correctly applies this passage when he writes this, quote, those in your charge, your portion or your lot, implies that the elders knew whom they were responsible for. This is just another way of talking about membership. If a person does not want to be held accountable by a group of elders or be the special focus of the care of a group of elders, they will resist the idea of membership and they will resist God's appointment a point of way for them to live and be sustained in their faith. I remember years ago we had a guy come to our church and resisted becoming a member. And some people don't agree with my take on this. 
And so they don't feel the need to do formal church membership. And they come to all of our meetings and our congregational meetings. They even pipe up and share their opinions and we listen because they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. They don't get to vote. They can't be leaders in the church. Right? But, but we welcome them still as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're trying to be non-legalistic about this and loving with people who might not accept and agree with our perspective on everything, while at the same time holding to the principles that we think we should hold to. But this fellow said, adopted a really terrible heresy without telling anybody and finally came out with it. And he said, this is why I never became a member. You can't discipline me for this then. And I said, oh yeah? <laughs> yes, we can. And he was involved in some ministry in our church and we immediately said no. And we told him, you can't take communion here either. He said, we can discipline you all right. You're welcome to come, especially since his wife and children were believers. You're welcome to come. We, we're not going to treat you like a member of this body. We did before, even though you weren't a formal member. In most ways, we treated you like you were. We're not going to do it anymore. So yeah, we can do discipline all right. And we will. Whether you want to follow the Bible or not, we're still going to follow it. That was our, what the elders said. <laughs> and so that's what we did. So uh, Piper's right. Some people resist it for that reason. Most people don't die meat. Most people aren't aware of these kinds of arguments that I'm making. They don't see something clear in the Bible, so they're hesitant. They, they haven't heard these clear arguments being made. And so if they can't see it clearly stated somewhere, they're hesitant about it. And by the way, they should be. I'm not, that's, that's not a bad thing. To, to want people to demonstrate clearly something from the Bible before you believe it is a good impulse to have in your heart. I would say. Um, so I'm not condemning that. Um, there are a lot of people that just haven't been taught like this before. They're unaware. And some have been and say, well, Keith, I think you're just pushing it too far, is all. Okay, then we'll agree to disagree in love. But you can't be an elder or deacon in this church. You okay with that? So are we. Um, but... Peter also implies here, getting back to our text, that elders will be held accountable by the Lord for their work when he says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Uh, is it too much then to ask that churches utilize a formal process of membership if for no other reason to better enable the elders to do their job? Yeah. The author of Hebrews also stresses the accountability of church leaders for those under their charge when he issues these commands to the church in Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. George and Pastor George, Pastor Ben, Pastor Brent, and I, we will have to give an account to God one day. As James said, be not many of you teachers, for they shall incur a stricter judgment. And elders are teachers. But it's presupposed, again, that elders will have some understanding of who it is for whom they are or are not responsible and for whom they must or must not give account as their portion. This seems to imply at the very least some means of keeping track. And I would just ask, isn't the practice of formal church membership just such a means of keeping track? It's really all it is. And could we keep track without such a means? It's kind of hard. It could be. We need to assess in some way who does and who does not give a credible profession of faith, for example. And also, how could we help the members of the body to know how to fulfill their obligation to the household of faith, as we saw earlier in Galatians 6.10, if they themselves cannot keep track of who constitutes this household. There's one more set of passages that clearly indicates that churches had some formal means of assessing who are to be regarded as part of their local bodies and who are not to be so regarded. And that's texts which speak of church 
discipline. This is the last set of texts. There's probably a sixth set we could have put in, actually, if I, um, and that's uh, texts which uh, deal with how church is related to one another in, in the New Testament. Um, but I'll, I'll just leave off with texts which speak of church discipline. Um, now, the key passages dealing with church discipline also, I would argue, imply a clear understanding of who is and who is not a part of the body. The first key text is in, in Matthew 18, which says, beginning in verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So if he responds with repentance, you treat him like the brother that he is. You've gained your brother. But if he doesn't respond in repentance, you treat him like he's not a believer at all. Like he's not your brother. Like he's a heathen and a tax collector. That's like saying, like an unbeliever. And in this case tax collector, the worst of unbelievers, because he's had all this knowledge and all this chance to repent and has refused to do so. And I like to point out whenever I'm teaching on this passage, there's really only one sin in the end for which church discipline is ever done. That's the sin of unrepentance. At any point that someone repents of whatever sin it is, discipline has functioned and they've been restored. The only sin really that someone's disciplined for is an unrepentant heart. Someone who has an unrepentant heart is liking, acting like an unbeliever. And so Jesus says, treat them that way. Regard them like that. That's what's going on in Matthew 18 in my, in my assessment. But when this ultimate step in church discipline has to be taken, it is assumed that the church will gather together for this purpose and that the church will speak with one voice to the wayward brother um, who they then will no longer regard as one of their numbers should he not repent. Because he says, tell it to the church. And if he won't listen to the church, then you regard him like a heathen or a tax collector. And so again, we see there's some way of knowing who is in and who is out. Especially if the process of church discipline is, is also involving deciding who is in and out. Is this person a brother who's in or like a heathen and tax collector who's out. There's another uh, passage, and the same can be said of this passage. It's Paul's admonitions to the Corinthian church. I'm going to read a lengthy portion here, but I'm not going to get into detail about it because we, we don't have time. I just want to highlight one or two things, and that's, that'll be sufficient to make the point. But I'm gonna, I want to read the whole passage to give you the idea of the context uh, better. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Even the wicked Gentile culture in which they live would not tolerate that, Paul's saying. And yet the church was tolerating it. And he says, and you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Notice what he says there. That he who has done this deed may be taken away from among you. Somehow removed from them. He'll talk about that more. He says, for I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's asking them to do something hard, and he's reminding them, hey, I'm with you in this, but more importantly, Jesus is with you in this. You can do this, people. You can do it. You can humble yourselves and follow these commands. And uh, he says, what do I want you to do? I want you to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And we'll see this, this means, in some way, removing this person from the church so that he, in some way, lacks the protection that he has or something, right? And Satan, to whom this person has been getting in, 
is going to do his worst, I guess. And he says um, the reason for this is so that the person can ultimately be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. And he says, your glorying is not good. They were really pleased with themselves, even though they tolerated sin like this. He says, that's a bad thing. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven. And in this context, it means purging out from, a, from among their body this guy who's committing this sin. That you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's talking about how this church discipline should be done, not with cruelty, right? And he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He said, you shouldn't even be keeping company with somebody like this. Yet I certainly did not mean, he said, with sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then we need to go out of the world. So he means someone who's saying they're a Christian and is sexually immoral. Don't even, don't even keep company with them. He's talking about avoiding them as a disciplinary measure here. What some people call shunning. It's right here. He says, but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And then he says, for what have I, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Inside and outside what? The church, in the context, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Um, he's saying, get rid of this guy, let God judge him. Now, without getting into some more, uh, more difficult details of the passage, I think it is at least clear that Paul expected the believers and Christians in Corinth, rather, to know who is inside and who is outside the church. They had to know somehow who was named a brother, as he put it in verse 11, and who was not. I think Mark Dever is correct when he argues this way about this text. Quote, Paul is calling for the exclusion of this immoral brother, which would imply that it meant something to be included in that church. He would lose the privileges of membership previously conferred upon him. Then he says, formal exclusion presupposes formal inclusion. Now, if there's a flaw in that reasoning, I haven't been able to find it. So in conclusion, I'll, I'll simply point out again that uh, while it must be kept in mind, I don't think there's a clear passage that expressly says that we must practice a particular type of formal church membership. Maybe some churches do things a little bit differently than we do, for example. You know, as the old saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Although I still don't know why anybody would want to skin a cat, but that's the saying, right? But I do think, even though there might be different ways we might apply this idea, I think we, we can draw as what I think is not only good but a necessary inference that the early church practiced some kind of formal membership process. But as I said earlier, I don't, I don't think we should be legalistic in the way we practice such things, given that the Bible really offers no details as to how the early churches went about this and gives no clear commands about how it should be practiced. Uh, like we have a formal meeting, well, it's actually a pretty informal meeting with the elders where we just have a discussion with people to ascertain whether they have a credible profession of faith, what their walk with the Lord has been like, and talk to them about what it means to be a member of our church and what's expected of us and them and uh, 
Uh, some other churches may do it a little bit differently. Uh, they may say, well, well, we'll add a step to that. Well, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that. At the very least, I think we can say, based on the evidence brought forth here today, at least I think so, uh, that we should require people to be baptized believers in Christ in order to be regarded as members of the church. And so this means that we'll also want them to possess a clear understanding of the true gospel and an orthodox faith in Christ. Um, and given what I've read in, in the New Testament, it would seem that the elders are the ones ultimately responsible for seeking to ensure this. And in this way, helping to maintain the purity of the church. You can't have a pure church with a bunch of unbelievers being considered part of it. It's by definition an impure church. In fact, it might not even be a church, biblically speaking, at that point. But since the elders are to protect the flock by maintaining pure doctrine, as Paul said in Acts 20 and Titus 1, uh, this would not be accomplished by allowing false professors or heretics into the membership, for example. Um, we should just be careful not to make secondary matters a test for membership rather than essential doctrines. Like uh, in our church, um, here's what you have to believe about the end times. Jesus is coming back personally, bodily, as he left. There's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And the wicked are going to spend eternity in hell, and the righteous are going to spend eternity in heaven. That's all you have to agree to about end times to be a member of this church. You can hold to whatever view of the millennium or the tribulation you want to hold to. We don't make that a test of orthodoxy or of membership in our church. If you're an orthodox believer on that point, that's good enough for us. So we're not, we're not trying to straighten a gnat and then swallowing a camel kind of thing. But I'd, I'd like to briefly point out at least five practical reasons for church membership based on about everything we've looked at so far to give you five practical reasons. And I'll close with this. One, it helps to maintain the purity of the church's doctrine by helping to make certain that those who are admitted into membership are actually orthodox believers. Many a church has gone off the rails because they did not do this. Secondly, it helps to practice church discipline as the scriptures teach that we should. Uh, it seems to me this would be especially helpful in a large church. In a small church like this, even if there are some people who haven't, for whatever reason, decided to enter into formal church membership with us, we still know who's believers and who aren't. And we still know who we're going to treat like members of the body of Christ and like our brothers and sisters, and for all intents and purposes like members of the church, aside from some of these things they won't be able to take part in. Uh, but that's easier to do because we're a small congregation. In a big church... That would be much more difficult. Think about the apostles and elders in Jerusalem where in one day 3,000 people were added to the church. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that, that list they kept would be very helpful when it came time to, to discipline. A third, in a church that practices congregational involvement in decision-making, it helps to vet those who will, be who will be voting. And our church does that. We have adopted... A, in our constitution and bylaws, this process, for example, for our budget. We don't, we don't have a budget that the whole congregation doesn't vote to accept because when, the, when we redid our constitution years ago, the elders said, you know what? This isn't our money. This is the church's, this is God's money. But it, on the human level, it's the church's money. We don't think as elders we should just take it upon ourselves to decide what's done with all this money. We, uh, so we put in there that we have some leeway within the budget to make alterations if we need to, within a certain amount. But we thought, no, we need to be held accountable to the body. It's their money. So we, we adopted this process, and the church agreed and voted to agree on this. We adopted this process of voting about it. Everybody has to take part in how we spend our money. It's because it's everybody's money. 
right? And so that's how we felt about it. We felt that's a good biblical way to do it. Uh, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. It's the way we chose to do it here. Um, but if you're going to do that, you want to vet those people. You don't want people voting. You're not sure if they're a believer or if you're not sure where they stand on things or if they're hesitant to become members. For whatever reason, maybe you don't want them voting on important matters, including we have to, if we're ever going to change our, our doctrinal statement, it requires a huge majority to do that in our church. So if, if you have people that, you got to vet those people. <laughs> you don't want people voting what your doctrine is going to be in the future if they don't even have good doctrine, for example. Fourth, uh, a formal practice of church membership serves to provide a more thoroughly vetted pool from which to select church leaders. Now, I've spoken about that a couple of times already. Can't, can't be a leader in this church unless you have formally entered into membership here. And, frank, and frankly, I don't know why you'd want to be. If, if the church is a, a body that you believe you can formally attach yourself to, why would you even think to want to be a leader of it anyway? And lastly, fifthly, it helps to emphasize a scriptural view of commitment to Christ and to his church. Far too many people today want to say they're committed to Christ, but shun commitment to any particular local church. And that's not a scriptural understanding, and it's detrimental to the believer's growth in Christ, as well as to the health of the church. Now, as I've said before, there are some people that might not agree with my case I've made today. They might not have bought in. And we've had people in our church like that who've been as committed as anyone else. But we've also had people that didn't want to take that step because they lacked commitment. There are people like that. They don't want to commit to anything. They don't want to join, even though they are believers. They don't want to join a particular body. They don't want to be held accountable to that body. They won't have to submit to the leadership in that body. And they want to be able to easily break away from that body at any moment. Now, if there are people in that first category that say, well, I'm not quite convinced, but they're really committed, and you can see they're committed to the body, and they didn't need to do this formal membership to be that committed, there are people like that. But for those people who are in this second category, there's a real heart problem. I say I love Jesus, but I don't want to get too close to any of his people. There's a serious problem with that. If you're in that first category, we love you, and we hope you'll agree with us at some point. Until that point, we can agree to disagree in love, and we'll still treat you <laughs> like you're part of this body because we love you. Although, as I said, you won't be able to vote in our meetings on things we vote about. But it's okay if you want to make that choice not to do that. But if you're in that second category, if you're here today and you, you don't want to be a member because you're in that category where you just don't want to, and some of you came by it honestly, you've been burned in previous churches. Membership has maybe been used as a bludgeon, you know, against you. And, and leaders have been overbearing or manipulative or something, and you're hesitant. There's some people that come by that honestly. You need to get over that for your own good. Because here's the, here's the thing. The issue isn't whether or not you can trust us in the end. In fact, there's almost certainly going to be ways in which we're going to let you down. Because we're not perfect yet. We're still this side of heaven. We'll try our hardest not to do that. And we'll try to repent sincerely if we do let you down. But the issue isn't really whether or not you trust us. The issue is whether or not you trust Jesus. Enough to be vulnerable. That's the real issue. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's been my hope that I have been clear today. Uh, my mind is a flurry with all kinds of thoughts that, <laughs> that I wasn't even planning on saying in this message. And 
I just hope I've been able to speak clearly and with love as well as conviction. And Lord, I, 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 I hope I've been able to speak the truth in love because it's love in my heart for you, I believe, and, and for the people here that's led me to teach on this. Lord, for those who are struggling with this concept, maybe they're not, they're struggling with, well, maybe I'm not sure it's as biblical as Keith says it is. Well, work in my heart and theirs, I pray. Whatever needs to be worked. But for those who are struggling to commit, and that's really the issue, help them to get past that, Lord. Help them to see that they're really not trusting you with their life. Help them to get past it. And help us to love them so much that it'll be easy for them to get past it. Help us to make it easy for them to want to join. For them to see so much of the love of Christ and, and, and the love of your word and the love for the body here that they just want to be a part of it. Help us to make it easy for them, I pray. Lord, we'll give you the glory for what you do as a result. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your very kind attention.